Well, if you've brought your copy of God's Word open to the book of Daniel, we are going to start back up here in Daniel chapter 8. Now, I'd mentioned a couple weeks ago that I was going to probably jump in and give you some rapture information, but in, in um, evaluating that, I really need us to get into chapter 9 because uh, there's some information that, we'll be, that we will be talking about and discussing that Daniel chapter 9, and in particular the end of Daniel chapter 9, gives us insight on, and I didn't want to just start jumping into Daniel 9 and, and utilizing that. So the Lord and His sovereignty laid out uh, this revelation in, in the order that He did, and so we're just going to continue following it. So we will get through Daniel chapter 8, the good Lord willing, today. That's the plan, the entire chapter. Can you believe that? No, me either, but we're going to try. And there's no two views on chapter 8, so you can rest assured. Um, we're just going to go with one. And um, it's a really pretty simple and straightforward passage, but what it articulates is revelation that gives us insight regarding the time at the end. And um, Gabriel, the angel who is talking here with Daniel towards the end of chapter 8, says so uh, very plainly. Because Daniel chapter 8, we're going to see how God um, just deals with judgment of the nation of Israel through a man by the name of Antiochus IV. And Antiochus isn't technically his name. That's a name that he gave himself when he became the eighth king in the line of Seleucid kings who um, were one of, well, we'll get there. I'm jumping ahead of myself. But this man, Antiochus, he reigned over that Seleucid kingdom from 175 to 164 B.C., not a very long time at all. And it was over this six, uh, during that time, there was about a six-year span where um, uh, Antiochus and his military forces were out and uh, maraudering around, and they found themselves in the beautiful land, the land of Israel. And he brought great persecution against God's people. So I want to show you this beautiful chart. Y'all like my beautiful charts? I hope so. So here's a beautiful chart that I think will help us understand some of this as we move forward. You remember the guy here? He's on my left, and well, he's on your left, too. This is the, uh, the dream that Nebuchadnezzar had, right? Chapter 2, we've been over this a multitude of times. Babylon is the head of gold. We see that in Daniel 2.38. You are the head of gold. So it gives us a reference point, a historical reference point in time and space as to uh, where, where we are in history, okay? Babylon was the head of gold. And so throughout the statue and the, and the world and the nations that would overthrow them, we see the Medes and Persians were second. We see Greece was, is third and Rome was fourth, the fourth kingdom. And we've seen this as it's played itself out in human history. This is what we see when we look into the history books. This is exactly what we see, and it's how this statue was laid out. So what we're going to be getting at here, this Antiochus guy, you see right down here, I've got this real fancy looking arrow. We see Antiochus IV, and his name is Epiphanes. And this chapter is going to be showing us how this Antiochus character is a, is a type of another character, another military leader who's going to come at the end of the time. And we saw him a lot in chapter 7, and that was the little horn who became a larger horn who was the end-time Antichrist. And so this Antiochus, we're going to see through chapter 8, is a type of 
the one who's still yet future to come even from our day. Both of these were future from Daniel's day, this Antiochus and the future Antichrist from our day because we're right down here now in history. We're in 2022, still up in here. We're still anticipating the coming Antichrist. But this Antiochus person, he's already, he's already run his race. Uh, we see his dating right through here. But we see this in particular when we get in here into chapter 8. So I'm giving you just a little information on this Antiochus real fast. So when we get to verse 5, which we're going to, it's the, the, uh, the, the revelation says, while I was observing, Daniel says, while I was observing, behold, a male goat was coming from the west over the surface, right here, I'm just reading from right here, over the surface of the whole earth without touching the ground, and the goat had a conspicuous horn between his eyes. So here we have some more animal language and horns as we saw a lot of in chapter 7. Well, when we get down to verse 21 of chapter 8, we have a very clear indication. The shaggy goat represents the kingdom of Greece. So here we have in this statue of the dream that Nebuchadnezzar had in chapter 2, we've got the Grecian Empire, and here we've got Greece. So we, we get to line ourselves up very easily, historically, based on some very obvious statements that are made in the text. The kingdom of Greece and the large horn that is between his eyes is the first king... And you see, I've got this little nice fancy chart. The first king of Greece was Alexander the Great, who established uh, that Grecian empire. And he indeed um, moved very quickly over the surface of the whole earth without touching the ground. Again, kind of referring to, I guess, the speed with which Alexander the Great was conquering the known world at that time. So... This first king, that horn of Greece, was Alexander the Great. But notice in verse 22, the broken horn and the four horns that arose in its place represent four kingdoms, which will arise from his nation, from the Grecian nation, although not with his power. And so we previously had reviewed this in chapter 7, that the, the four generals, when Alexander the Great passed away, these are the four generals, Cassander, Lysimachus, Seleucus, and Ptolemy. These were the four generals that took over that Grecian empire, and they became kings in their own rights over portions of the Grecian empire. And it's this Antiochus who is the eighth in the line of the Seleucid kings. So he's coming from this general who became a king, Seleucus, after the, uh, the, the original horn was broken off, and then the four horns, these other four kingdoms emerged. So this is the Antiochus that we are dealing with here in chapter 8 okay it's this Antiochus again that brought great persecution against the Jewish nation and we're going to see that very plainly in in chapter 8 here in just a minute and as I mentioned again he's a, pre, a prefiguring of yet another historical person the Antichrist who will come at the end of the time and will also bring great devastation against God's people and so it seems that the Lord has, has given Daniel a vision that would be a foreshadowing of the type of persecution that was yet to come. And we're going to see in the text how there's a very clear distinction made between the historical person Antiochus Epiphanes and that yet future leader who's still yet to come. We will get there in the text here briefly. And as we went through Daniel chapter 7, again, the person that he's prefiguring was, again, the, this, um, the one who speaks out against God Most High, 
This is from Daniel 7, 25. He's going to be the one, the end-time Antichrist, who's going to wear down the saints of the highest one, and he will intend to make alterations in times and in laws, and they will be given into his hand for three and a half years. So this is the one that Antiochus will be prefiguring in Daniel chapter 8. And what we're also going to see uh, in chapter 8 with this Antiochus, and by the way, as I mentioned, he was the one who gave himself this name. His father was Antiochus III, and he had a, a surname, his father did, it was Antiochus the Great, and it seems that perhaps he was giving himself that name, I don't know, perhaps after Alexander the Great. <clears throat> but this Antiochus <clears throat> the fourth, whose um, uh, surname that he gave for himself was Epiphanes, the illustrious one. So I don't think they were lacking in confidence or the narcissistic tendency of wanting to think of themselves as illustrious and or great, because we see that levied in both of their names. And so this man is going to, with his military, he's going to uh, bring great persecution against God's people, just as the end-time Antichrist will against God's saints as well. Now, in, by, may, by way of a little bit of history, and I think that perhaps um, there's a, there's, there, there seems to me that there would need to be some, something somewhat significant with uh, this event as uh, revealed in Daniel chapter 8. Um, when we think about the history and what came out as a result of the coming of this Antiochus. <clears throat> when he brought his persecution against God's people, there was a revolt that raised itself with, uh, from a family of um, five sons uh, who were of one of the priests there in Jerusalem whose name was Matthias. And one of the sons of Matthias uh, in particular was named Judas, uh, Judas Maccabee. And from these five brothers and a lot of other marauders uh, there, military-minded individuals who preferred freedom over tyranny, they led a revolt that we refer to now as the Maccabean Revolt, which ultimately culminated in, in a victory for Judas and the Maccabees. Uh, history tells us that it was Judas and uh, his band of brothers and their mercenary army that upon the defeating of Antiochus in, in, in that military conflict that they had with them that lasted for some over three years, that they proceeded then to cleanse uh, a temple, the temple of God, and to make it proper again for worship because Antiochus, he had gone in and he desecrated the temple completely. He slaughtered a pig upon the altar of God and, and smeared its entrails all over the inside of the temple, thus desecrating the temple and making it an inhabitable place. And so the Maccabees, they went in and they cleansed this temple for proper worship and sacrifice, and they rededicated the temple for use and also for the glory of God. And as history has it recorded in the Talmud, now the Talmud is a book, perhaps you've heard of the Talmud. It's a book that was written for the sole purpose of preserving uh, Jewish oral law, things that perhaps weren't written down elsewhere. They felt the need that they needed to get certain things written down. Well, in the Talmud, it relates how these Judean heroes, led by Judas Maccabees, when making ready to rededicate the temple, so they had cleansed the temple, they were rededicating it for, the, for God's use and his sacrifice and the glory of his name. 
it recounts how they were unable to find enough undefiled oil, the purest of pure olive oil for the relighting of the temple lights that were to be lit and stayed lit perpetually. We see that from our Old Testament. Those lights never went out inside the temple. So as they made search for some of this undefiled oil, history has it and it's recorded as such that they found inside one of the temple chambers a small amount of oil that would be usable for uh, the lighting of the lamps within the temple of God. But they recognized that the amount of oil that they discovered was only enough oil to perhaps last for one day or perhaps through the evening. Yet miraculously, this small amount of oil that they uh, found there in the temple not only lasted for one night, but for an entire eight nights until more oil was found or produced that was fit for use in the temple before their holy God. And this miracle uh, of sorts, this small amount of oil that lasted some eight days, is commemorated annually now uh, through the lighting of lights during the Jewish holiday known as Hanukkah. Hanukkah simply means to dedicate, and that's what they were doing. They were rededicating the temple for use and sacrifice uh, to their God. Hanukkah, uh, also this festival, is also known as the Festival of Lights. And it's celebrated for eight days uh, every year. It's, it's commenced on the 25th day of the month of Kislev, which is on the Jewish calendar, Kislev, which would be our December. And every year on the 25th of December, the Jewish nation, they celebrate Hanukkah, a festival of lights, when the lights were relit in the temple of God so the temple could be used for the glory of God, for his name. Symbolically, these lights uh, that are lit in their menorah are a remembrance of this celebration annually, a remembrance of the dedication that Judas Maccabees and his band of brothers and marauders, when they fought for over three years to liberate themselves and their people and the cleansing of the temple and the rededicating of the temple to the worship of God. They do this remembrance every year, Kislev 25, for eight straight days. Have you ever heard a pretty cool song about that by any chance? I have. I can't remember it. You don't want me singing it. I can promise you that. But it's, it was pretty cool when my kids were younger. They used to play that one in the house. Sounded pretty neat. Talked about these very issues. It, it was a song that kind of reminds the Jewish people and others interested about this event. And it was for, again, some reason that this event that's by revelation in Daniel chapter 8 about Antiochus Epiphanes that led to this unique annual celebration. If you go back in, into the Jewish law, there was never, it was never told that, that uh, on the 25th of Kislev you're going to light menorahs. That, that was never, you, you see that nowhere in the Bible. 
You see other festivals that they keep on an annual basis, the Feast of Booths, etc. This is not one you find there. This is one that came about as a result of great persecution that came against God's people in the stopping of the sacrifice of God. And through uh, dedication to Yahweh, his people overcame. They persevered, and God put down the enemy, and they reestablished temple worship, and the lighting of the lights, the lamps within the temple for the praise and worship of God. This event in Daniel chapter 8 brings us to a, a recognition and a remembrance of that. And it seems that perhaps there's a reason that this is the case. And the interesting thing is, is that it's not clearly stated in the scriptures. We're not going to read anywhere in Daniel chapter 8 where it says, and therefore, as a result of this, they're going to start lighting menorah candles once the temple is destroyed and they don't have the ability to actually have sacrifices. We don't see anything like that at all. But I do find it somewhat interesting that uh, there's another celebration on Kislev 25 that doesn't take a lot of imagination to see the symbolic significance of remembering the advent of Christ on that exact day. And I don't think that there's anybody that I know of personally that believes that Jesus was actually born on December 25th. It just doesn't fit. And if it doesn't fit, what do you do? You acquit. However, symbolically, it makes great sense as to perhaps why and how Kislev 25 somehow got Christianized. Not to make it a day above other days or more special than any other day, but a remembrance of a commemoration. Because, after all, it was John the Apostle who wrote in his Gospels of Jesus that he was the light of the world. In John 8, 12... He said, I am the light of the world. I skipped this one. I knew I skipped one. Man, I hit that one so fast. In John 1, remember this, in him was life. And the life was the light of men. That the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. There came a man sent from God whose name was John. This is John the Baptist. He came as a witness to testify about the light so that all might believe through him. He was not the light. He was not the light. John was not the light, but he came to testify about the light. There was the true light, which coming into the world enlightens, brought salvation to all who would believe. We also see in John 8, 12, Jesus again spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. He who follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Jesus Christ is the light. John 9, 5, <clears throat> Jesus said, while I am in the world, I am the light of the world. And in twelve forty six, in John's gospel, he says, I have come as light into the world so that everyone who believes in me will not remain in darkness. <clears throat> and though it doesn't say, and though it's Perhaps my speculation on that, it seems to me that the revelation that was given Daniel in Daniel chapter 8 that brought about the commencement of this festival of lights, perhaps 
is an historical reminder, not only for the Jewish people, God's people, but also for the rest of God's people who will come to faith at some point to know that on a Kislev 25, God overcame darkness and relit the lights of the temple for the worship of the only true and living God. And perhaps as this Antiochus is going to be a type of another historical figure who's still yet to come, as we saw in Daniel chapter 7, there is one who's going to bring great persecution against the people of God. And he will be brought down. And God wins. And guess who shows up? The light of the world. Now, I don't know, I'm just spitballing here, but perhaps you're seeing some of the connections yourselves. Now, I'm not going to write that down in any book and claim infallibility or try to canonize that. We're just going to go with what the canon says. But we can also make some pretty simple observations, right? Because a lot of the things that we finished with there came straight out of Daniel chapter 7, and this Antiochus figure is a prefiguring of the Antichrist. So, that brings us now to chapter 8, verse 1. I said I was going to get finished today. You think I'm going to make it? Watch this. In the third year of the reign of Belshazzar, the king of Belshazzar, the king of vision appeared to me, Daniel. Subsequent to the one which appeared to me previously, I looked in the vision, and while I was looking, I was in the citadel of Susa, which is in the province of Elam, and I looked in the vision, and I myself was beside the Uli Canal, or the Uli Canal. So here, the third year of Belshazzar, the king, puts this vision prior to the events of chapter 5, which is the, the ending of which kingdom? Which was the ending of... That's the way Daniel's going to feel, right there at the end of the chapter. He feels just like this. That little one just got there before we did. So the third year of Belshazzar means that that this, this vision that Daniel has here is, while the head of gold is still the, the head of gold. Babylon has not been overthrown by the Medes and or the Persians. And so the vision of chapter 7, it said, was in the first year of Belshazzar. Here in chapter 8, Daniel's vision is said to be in the third year of Belshazzar, which would be some 10 to 11 years perhaps before the end of chapter 4, the end of the, of the Babylonian era, and the bringing in of the Medes and the Persians right here. So this is when Daniel, in this vision, sees himself by the citadel of Susa, which, interesting, was, be, was to become a chief city of the, of the Medes and the Persians, and it was some 250 miles east of Babylon. So let's keep moving to verse 3. It says, Then I lifted my eyes and looked, and behold, a ram, which had two horns, was standing in front of the canal. Now the two horns were long, but one was longer than the other, with the longer one coming up first. So a ram, another animal, two horns, one longer than the other. I saw the ram budding westward, northward, and southward, and no other beast, no other nation on the, on the earth at this time could stand before him, nor was there anyone to rescue from his power, but he did as he pleased and magnified himself. So again, the ram here is two horns, uh, we know is, a represent, is representing the kings and thus the kingdom of the Medes and the Persians. Okay, So here's another little beautiful chart of Nebuchadnezzar's dream. And after the head of gold is the Medes and the Persians right here. And so here's what we've just read in verses 3 and 4. 
And we see most particularly here when we get to verse 20 of chapter 8. <clears throat> it tells us very explicitly, the ram which you saw, okay, so I lift my eyes, behold, a ram, a ram, and here the ram, the ram which you saw with the two horns represents the kings of the Medes and Persians. So I'm taking it on solid evidence that, that this is the, the Medes and the Persians who Daniel is seeing here in this, in this vision of his. And so it's kind of lining itself up very well with Nebuchadnezzar's dream and the statue. Okay? Um, as we saw previously in chapter 5, that's when the Medes and the Persians conquer and bring Babylon down in chapter 5. Daniel's vision is prior to that, but in his vision he's seeing that. Now more on that in just a bit. Let's keep moving so we can kind of get the flow of this vision. Verse 5, while I was observing, behold, a male goat. So we had a ram, and now we have a male goat that's coming from the west over the surface of the whole earth without touching the ground, and the, great, and the goat had a conspicuous horn between his eyes. He came up to the ram that had two horns, which I had seen standing in front of the canal, and rushed at him in his mighty wrath. Verse 7, I saw him come beside the ram, and he was enraged at him. And he struck the ram and shattered his two horns. And the ram had no strength to withstand him. So he hurled him to the ground and trampled on him. And there was none to rescue the ram from his power. Verse 8, then the male goat magnified himself exceedingly. But as soon as he was mighty, the large horn was broken. And in its place there came up four conspicuous horns toward the four winds of heaven. Now, we went over that earlier when we first start talking about this Antiochus person who comes from this. So here we know um, this, this male goat <coughs> is Greece, and Greece overthrows the Medes and the Persians, and Daniel sees this in his vision, and it gives us all this information very, very plainly. It says it, that, that, that this shaggy goat, this goat is Greece. The first king we know is Alexander the Great. Four kingdoms that came from him are right here, his four generals that became kings. And we're going to see that this Antiochus Epiphanes, the illustrious one, is the eighth in the line of the Seleucid kingdom. Okay, so is everybody with me so far? So let's keep moving so that we can again see the full sweep of this vision that Daniel has. Look at verse 9. It says, out of one of them, that's one of the four horns, one of Alexander's generals. So out of one of them, so we've kind of already talked about this, but just so visually you can see it. Out of one of them came forth a rather small horn which grew exceedingly great toward the south. And though we see here a uh, small horn, we know from chapter 7 that the Antichrist was referred to first as a little horn, a small horn. And this doesn't equate that this small horn is the same as that. When no, this small horn is a prefiguring of that other smaller horn that's to come. We've, again, I don't need to repeat all of that. But here we see some of the similarities that start drawing our attention and bringing some connecting points between those two military leaders. So came forth a rather small horn which grew exceedingly great toward the south, toward the east, and toward the beautiful land. And that would be the beautiful land of Jerusalem. It grew up to the host of heaven and caused some of the host and some of the stars to fall to the earth, and it trampled them down. So in this 
picturesque language here of the host of, of heaven, the stars falling to the earth and trampling them down, it seems that that would just simply be describing this, this small horn's persecution against God's chosen people. Um, God's, the God who's in heaven has an elect people. He's chosen these people, and these people are being trampled down. And this is, again, a liking unto the Antichrist in chapter 7 who wages war against the saints of God. And it says in verse 11, it even magnified itself to be equal with the commander of the host, and it removed the regular sacrifice from him, and the place of his sanctuary was thrown down. So here in verse 11, this shows that the small horn is going to make himself out to be equal with God, and in doing so, is going to desecrate the temple of God, making proper sacrifice that which would be impossible. Again, we've reiterated the story of how that took place under this Antiochus IV. And then in verse 12, and on account of transgression, the host will be given over to the horn along with the regular sacrifice and it will fling truth to the ground and perform its will and prosper. So as a function of discipline, the Jewish people will be given over to suffer persecution at the hand of the little horn who will persecute the nation of Israel, God's chosen people, and will prosper for a period of time while doing that. And then in verse 13, it says, Then I heard a holy one speaking, and another holy one said to that particular one who was speaking, How long will a vision about the regular sacrifice apply? While the transgressions cause horror so as to allow both the holy place and the host to be trampled. In other words, how long will this persecution of this little horn last against God's people? And he says in verse 14, he said to me, For 2300 evenings and mornings, then the holy place will be properly restored. Now verse 14 is perhaps a particularly challenging verse in some ways in trying to determine is the 2300 evenings and mornings is that referring to 2300 days in particular which would amount to some six and a third you know six and one third years of of, of persecution or would the 2300 evenings and mornings just simply because evenings and mornings make up one day so if it's evenings and mornings, then perhaps it's just actually half of that, which would be just over three years of persecution from this Antiochus against God's chosen people. And it's kind of hard to distinguish which actually happened, but when you go back in history, we, we know that there's not an actual perfectly meeting out of how long this Antiochus IV waged his wars and battles against the Maccabeans, but we do know that that battle lasted for some three years before they gained the victory. So from my perspective, it seems better to understand the 2,300 evenings and mornings, evenings and mornings going together, and so there would be 2,300 evenings and 2,300 mornings, but when you bring them together, it cuts that in half, and so that perhaps would be somewhat over a three-year period of time, which would fit very well with some of the other timings within the scriptures, as we saw in chapter 7 and as we saw in Revelation chapter 13. However, that is a very prickly verse Indeed, and that's about the best I can do with it. So be like the Bereans and go study. Let me know what you discover on that one. But that's where I'm at on verse 14. Now, the near, again, the near fulfillment of this little horn, or we might say the historical perpetrator 
Again, I'm just reiterating myself yet again because through repetition, learning sometimes sinks in a little bit deeper. The historical perpetrator of the vision and the fulfillment of this little horn in Daniel chapter 8, the, the initial one would be represented by Antiochus IV, who rose from the Seleucid Empire to rule over the Syrian division of that empire from 175 to 164 B.C. But again, as we're going to see from verses 23 down through verse 26 here in chapter 8, this little horn also has a far fulfillment or distant historical perpetrator even from Antiochus. Again, connecting him with the Antichrist in chapter 7. And we're just about to get to those verses. Let's keep moving. Notice verse 15 down through verse 19, which it seems to me gives us an interpretive key. There's a couple of interpretive keys that we see from verse 15 to 19 that help us understand how this is a a prefiguring of the Antichrist still yet to come. Look at verse 15. Then I, Daniel, had, uh, when I, Daniel, had seen the vision, I sought to understand it. And behold, standing before me was one who looked like a man. And I heard the voice of a man between the banks of Uli, and he called out and said, Gabriel, give this man an understanding of the vision. 17. So when he came near to where I was standing, and when he came where I was... And when he came, I was frightened and fell on my face. But he, that would be Gabriel, said to me, Son of man, understand that the vision pertains to the time of the end. And so it seems here in verse 17, we have our first really strong interpretive key to understand the prefiguring of Antiochus IV with another historical figure who's to come, which is the Antichrist. And we see this in the language where it says that this vision, Daniel, Gabriel tells him that this vision, I want you to understand this, that this vision pertains to the time of the end, to the time time of the end. And it would seem that that would perhaps be the the end of, of what? The end of the persecution, the end of world history. It seems that if Gabriel would have said something like this, Daniel, understand that the vision uh, is the end of the time. Or if he were to say something like, it's the end of the world as we know it, that would have helped. But nonetheless, we see in this little interpretive key that this vision needs to be understood and it pertains to the time of the end. He doesn't say it just pertains to a sp- with a specific reference to Antiochus, but to the time of the end. And so when we go and we think of that, the time of the end, we're going to see that that best references itself back to chapter 7 and the time of the end when the Antichrist is overthrown by God's power, destroyed forever, and God's kingdom is established forever and ever and ever. So in verses 18 and 19, it says, now while he was talking with me, notice this, I sank into a deep sleep. Now this, this right here, sank into a deep sleep is all one verb. And it's a, and I looked at a lot of the translations and most of them have, make some kind of a reference to this being like a sleep. But in going to the dictionary, the Hebrew dictionary on this, this word could also mean dazed and or stunned. So 
I, I sank into a deep sleep. Now, while I was talking, and now this, I, did, I do have to admit that this, was, this can be a little bit of an encouraging verse for a preacher. So when he sees people falling asleep when he's talking, they say, well, at least, you know, people fall asleep when Gabriel's talking. So if you can fall asleep, if Daniel can sleep while Gabriel's preaching, certainly it must be okay when other people sleep when I'm preaching. So that's one of the comforts that preachers get from Daniel 8.18, but I don't think that it's meant to be taken that way. I spiritualized it. However... Um, perhaps he fell into a sleep, perhaps he was just dazed and stunned with the, the revelation that he's getting from Gabriel. Perhaps it's a little of all of this, and his face is to the ground. But we notice here something that Gabriel does. He touches Daniel, and he made him stand upright. It's like he grabs the attention of Daniel. He makes certain that Daniel's attention has been arrested because what I have to tell you, Daniel, is something you need not miss. And so, again, by means of repetition, Gabriel is making certain that Daniel, who was perhaps dazed or stunned or sleeping, was not in that state of mind but was upright and erect and was ready to, be, and to receive this information yet again. And notice, he basically repeats, repeats himself again in 19. He said, Behold, I am going to let you know what will occur at the final period of the indignation, for it pertains to the appointed time of the end. So again, an interpretive key that helps us understand some of what Gabriel is wanting Daniel to understand. This final period of indignation, what will occur at the final period of the indignation, at the final period, it seems that this final period of this indignation fits very well with the final period of this other large chart that we've seen. So you see I've brought Daniel chapter 8 in right in here. And we got it connected with Greece right here. This is Greece, the four kingdoms, and then the Seleucid kingdom and Antiochus IV. And it refers, Daniel, this vision that I'm giving you refers to the time of the end of the indignation, to the appointed time of the end. In the final period of the indignation, if it's truly final, if it's truly last again, would seem only to fit with the coming heavenly kingdom that destroys the kingdoms of man, as we saw over here from Daniel chapter 7. And that's why we believe that this is an interpretive key to let us know that this Antiochus IV is a prefiguring of this end-time Antichrist. And the time of the end is going to be a rock we saw in Daniel chapter 2, verse 44, that was cut without hand and smashes power of man and God causes a kingdom to rise up that will endure forever and ever and ever it seems like this is the interpretive key that Gabriel has given to Daniel now we're going to see towards the end of Daniel chapter 8 that he perhaps didn't understand this completely because he, he says that his thoughts were alarming. As a matter of fact, he says he's sick at the very end of chapter 8. He was appalled by what he sees, and he says, there was none to make understanding of this for me. So even the information that Gabriel was giving him was leaving Daniel somewhat dazed or confused, but 
Gabriel made certain that he understood exactly what this vision pertained to. The time of the end, and that would be the end of all human history, when Jesus Christ comes back, the light of the world, and puts down the forces of darkness one last, final time. Now let's see this really quickly. Let's go from verse 20 to the end of this chapter. So this is a repeat. We've seen this. The ram which you saw with two horns represents the kings of Media and Persia. The shaggy goat represents the kingdom of Greece, and the large horn that is between his eyes is the first king. Verse 22, the, the broken horn and the four horns that arose in his place represent four kingdoms which will arise from his nation, although not with his power. I'm tempted to repeat what I've said to you, but you've seen this chart. I've got it, I've said, show this chart again and briefly explain, but we've done this enough and I'm looking at the clock on the wall to know that I need to go ahead and keep moving. But we, this is a, a, a repetition, what we just read, verse 20 through verse 22. We've already rep, well, I've represented those and, and read those to you, so we're going to keep moving. Look at verse 23, down through verse 25. In the latter period of their rule, when the transgressors have run their course, a king will arise. A king will arise, insolent and skilled in intrigue. And here again, we see this language that's referred to as the latter period. The latter period. Which Gabriel had just used back in verse 19 when he said, Behold, I'm going to let you know what will occur in the final period. Or he could have said the latter period or the last period of the indignation. For it pertains to the appointed time of the end. And here in verse 23, a king is going to arise in the latter period. And he will be full of insolence and skilled in intrigue. So this final period, it seems, of verse... 19 and the latter period of verse 23 I believe are best understood as referring to the same time period which again is the final and the last time period of human history when the antichrist is overpowered and overtaken by the power of God and the light of the world shows up in a second advent and establishes a kingdom forever and ever and ever let's keep moving verse 24 His power will be mighty, but not by his own power. Now, if you remember, we saw this. His power will be mighty, but not by his own power. Over the last several weeks, we saw this already. The beast which I saw was like a leopard. His feet were like those of a bear. His mouth like the the mouth of a lion. Straight out of Daniel chapter 7, right here. A A culmination of all those beasts that Daniel saw. And notice, and the dragon gave him his power. The dragon here in Revelation 13 is a reference, a direct reference to Satan. And Satan, the devil, gives his power to this beast. And so in Daniel 8, 24, Gabriel is saying that his power will be mighty, and indeed it will be, but it's not by his own power. This end-time antichrist figure that's now being talked about here in Daniel 8 will be empowered by none other than the devil himself. Let's keep moving in verse 24 and 25. Not by his own power, and he will destroy to an extraordinary degree and prosper and perform his will. He will destroy mighty men and the holy people. 
mighty men and the holy people. The holy people that he will destroy will be the holy saints of God. Holy is the idea of being set apart. Saint is from the word holy, at least in the, in the, in the Greek. And so the holy people that's being referenced here are the holy people of God, the saints of God, as we saw back in Daniel chapter 7, again, verse 20, 21, that that little horn, Antiochus, who prefigures the Antichrist, wages war against the saints and overpowers them. Again, in Matthew 24, we saw this. They will be handed over to tribulation, great Antichrist persecution, and they will kill you, and you will be hated by all nations because of my name, because of the name of Jesus Christ. And we saw this in Revelation 6, 9, when the Lamb broke the fifth seal, I saw underneath the altar the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God. He will destroy mighty men and the holy people. We've seen that in various places throughout the word of God. And here in verse 25, and through his shrewdness, he will cause deceit to succeed by his influence. And he will magnify himself in his heart. Again, he's here talking about the end time antichrist and what this man then will look like. And he will magnify himself in his heart and he will destroy many while they are at ease. He will even oppose the prince of princes but he will be broken. Interpretive key. Will be broken without human agency. So when we go back to Daniel chapter 2, verse 34, what did we see? A stone that was cut without hands, without human agency. The stone that's cut without hands, it strikes the statue, the power of men. And they are crushed. And then God brings in a kingdom that will endure forever and ever. We saw this in Daniel chapter 7 verse 26. The court will sit for judgment. And his dominion, that world leader at the end of times, will be taken away, annihilated, and destroyed forever. We saw this again in Revelation 19 towards the very end. But this is about that beast that, that the dragon gave his power to. And remember what it said right there? Back in Daniel, let me, let me show you this real fast. In Daniel 8, 25. And he will magnify himself in his heart. And he will destroy many while they are at ease. In this part right here, he will even oppose the prince of princes. When we go to Revelation 19, we see this beast and the kings of the earth. And what are they doing? They have their armies assembled to make war against him who sat on the horse and against his army. Now, when you go back up in Revelation 19 to the beginning, you see that the one who sits on this horse is none other than Jesus Christ. Just like Daniel saw in his vision, he will oppose the prince of princes, but he will be broken without human agency. And so here in Dan Revelation 19.20, the beast... And the false prophet are thrown alive into the lake of fire which burns with brimstone forever and ever. Just like we saw previously when we were going through chapter 7. This is exactly what happens to the end time antichrist. And then to finish this up for good for good, verse 26 and 7. The vision of the evenings and mornings which, was, which has been told is true. Gabriel says to Daniel, everything I've just laid out before you is true. 
this will happen. But keep the vision secret, for it pertains to many days in the future. And there were many days in the future for the original application with Antiochus. And then there's still yet a future day because he prefigures the Antichrist. Then in verse 27, I, Daniel, was exhausted and sick for days. Then I got up again and carried on the king's business. But I was astounded at the vision, and there was none to explain it. So it seems that Daniel's understanding of what Gabriel told him let him know yet again that there was going to be a great time of persecution of God's judgment against God's holy people. And probably the thought of that alone is enough to make Daniel sick for days, as perhaps it should us as well. And when we get to Daniel chapter 9, we're going to see that Daniel was a praying man, as was his custom. And we're going to see that he is praying for his people, as he knows that the time of their release is drawing nigh. However, we'll get to Daniel chapter 9 next week. I told you I was going to get through Daniel chapter 8. Hurrah! We did it. Now, I just downloaded a ton of information. Welcome to Jinx Bible Church. This is more like a seminary class today than perhaps preaching, okay? Sometimes biblical texts lay themselves out in such a way that it's very easy. It's just so preachy, and it just you can just wax eloquent, and all those encouraging, challenging admonitions to go and, and let your light shine. But can we not say from a passage like this to go let your light shine? Absolutely. Because uh, we don't want to forget Kislev 25 and Judas Maccabees. Now, think about this. Think about how proud Judas Iscariot's mother must have been when she named her boy Judas. Judas Maccabees, a historical reference that we're naming her son. And I bet there was a time in Israel when there was a lot of baby boys named Judas. But have you noticed? You just don't see those anymore. Because God came in time in history and there was a Judas Maccabees who put down Antiochus. And then there was a time that came when the light of the world came in his first advent and there was a Judas kiss that betrayed the light of the world and handed him over to the darkness. But yet it was for our great victory. Well, this is Daniel chapter 8. Let's let our light shine. Because people out there want to know these things. I don't know if you've, if you've paid much attention, but there's a lot of this kind of rumbling going on out there in the social stratosphere and the zones of all these places you go and your places of living your best life now. Let your light shine. People need the Lord. Just like Gabriel told Daniel, these things are true. This time is coming. Don't, don't get lulled to sleep. Don't be like the frog in the kettle and say, well, I've got plenty of time. I can just, I can just start really living for the Lord later. I can, you know, right, right now I just want him as Savior, but maybe later I'll make him Lord. Well, that's a dichotomy the Scriptures don't even recognize. It's not even something the Scriptures recognize. Jesus is Savior indeed, but he's Lord of heaven and earth. And he's the Lord who's coming, and he's going to put down the final powers of darkness and is going to establish a kingdom forever and ever and ever and we will reign with him forever that's good news and people need that good news amen so if you're here this morning and you don't know the lord jesus christ in an intimate way that way just come find myself brother royce pastor matt nate back there find one of the elders of this church we'd love to share the gospel with you and rejoice with you if god draws your heart to him let's pray